So happy to see all of you here. Thank you so much for joining. Um, today we have a very important guest. He's Tobias Mende. He's a hands-on technical advisor to SaaS startups. And um, besides him, we have Adrian, which is a snackable CTO and also my mentor, which I'm very proud to have him here, as well as Dennis, which is a leadership and craftsmanship coach. Great person and check out please his live videos. They're great. So thank you for all of you being here and we'll do a very short round of introduction for all of you. So please, Tobias. Yeah, hi, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I've worked on SaaS startups uh, before. Um, I've led a developer experience team, a platform team to increase developer experience and productivity. And uh, there we also uh, introduced continuous deployments for 15 teams, roughly 60 people at that time. And uh, now I'm doing this uh, as a technical advisor for software startups. Not only that, also architectural challenges, team structures, uh, team topologies kind of uh, work. So if that's interesting, uh, always happy to chat about that too. And I'm really looking forward to talking about this today. I'm with you. That's amazing. Thank you for being here, Dennis. Hello. Hello, Tobias. Hello, Camilla. Hello, Adrian. Hello, everybody in chat. It's always nice to be on these Wednesday calls because I don't have to moderate. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm a craftsmanship and leadership coach. Basically, my background is I'm a tech lead slash architect in software and a life coach. So I've, after a short hiatus and self-development, I've sort of decided to combine that as a, as a consultant coaching mentorship role. And now I sort of figure, and now I help leaders and uh, and technologists figure out sort of common problems in our industry, mostly focusing on um, startups and small and medium businesses. So I'm, I'm I'm I think we sort of have the same uh, target audience regarding what we do and who we work with. And in that regard, I'm also very hands-on, so I'm very similar to your, yourself, Tobias. So I'm, I'm glad to have you on as a guest and sort of ask you a little bit more tactical tactical questions uh if nothing else to save my own curiosity thank you that sounds great adrian i am the guy posting with a cookie <laughs> and um yes uh, so i think most of you know me already so i keep it uh, short um i'm i'm calling myself the snackable cto because i'm actually full-time job as a cto in a small business area uh, doing a lot of uh, decision making, working a lot of with clients, sometimes hands on, and exactly about those learnings in the last fifteen years. It's roughly fifteen years now. I'm talking about. I'm writing about. I'm streaming about like today, and just talking about those things that others just you know learn from those things uh, which I went through the hard way. Yeah, this is actually about me. So yes, that's me. Sounds good. Um, I would say I would very shortly introduce myself. I don't have such a long career in all of this, but I just started working a year ago. And um, yeah, I'm a front-end developer. I'm, I'm very passionate for learning and talking about all of these topics. So I'm very happy to have you all here and be able to kind of share everything. And yeah, just happy to hear about this great topic. Um, we can continue. So Tobias, what is there something that you would like to start off with? Like something you say, okay, let's just like go with this topic right now. Uh, yeah, sure. Let's let's just dive into the the meat of it and let's talk about um, why do some software engineer teams uh, have fears of doing deployments? 
uh, and uh, yeah. try to keep away from deployments. So maybe, uh, Dennis, would you like to start about this topic? Oh, wow. Passing it around. You have a very, very, <laughs> very conscientious. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, no, I, I mean, I think the, the elephant in the room is who should be pressing the button? Like, who should, should somebody press who, the button? Who no, should I deploy mean, and who's liable for what happens? Exactly. Who should be deploying? Should a machine be de deploying? Should, you know, should we be working manually to set up an automatic pipeline? And should that thing be deploying? And then the person who set up the pipeline is responsible? Is the responsible person the person who put the thing that is being deployed? Right. So I think that is sort of getting close to the root cause, perhaps not exactly on the the the, the final the final door, let's say. Um, right. But I think I think for our conversation today, we should really talk about um, who does this start with? Like who has who's who has skin in the game by addressing this problem. Mm -hmm. So and maybe for everyone who's who's joined, so we're talking about deploy on Friday because most people I personally knew in my career were afraid or avoiding any form of deployments near end of day weekend or something like that. Right. And there are root causes for that. Okay. So we want to discuss in a deep dive why this is the case, why the, there is an anxiety to do that and how we can mitigate this, how we can get into position to do that on a daily basis, you know, every day to every time with everyone in your company, not just one person who is able to do this and you ask him, everyone, like Camilla here, is doing that as well, yeah, as a junior developer, just saying. Tobias, what are the reasons, that the root causes, why do you think people are afraid of? Because, I, in my experience, because they don't know what this is about. It's something mystical over there that the operations team does, or maybe the QA team does after they check that everything is working. It's something complex. And also because it's rarely done in, in these kind of scenarios, it often goes wrong. And then they assume, okay, deployments are something risky and something that's dangerous to the business. So we should do it as little as possible. And somebody with a lot of experience only should do it. What are your thoughts on that? Sounds like a Dennis question. Sounds, it does sound good. It sounds like it sounds like a question Dennis usually asks on coaching sessions. So <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I'm on the spot here. Um, you know, something I always focus on with my teams is that this sort of fear of not deploying on Friday is usually a symptom. In exploring this, I always ask, is this our most important problem, right? So is this, okay, we, we don't want to deploy on Friday. Is this really what we should be focusing on, right? So we're in the book club right now, we're reading the book Accelerate. And they make it very clear that to have a very strong, mature, elite performing engineering culture, you need two ingre important ingredients, the product engineering and design, the thing that builds and delivery. Now, when we say DevOps, most often what I find is that people say, oh, DevOps is that SRE thing. DevOps is that Kubernetes management thing. Um, but if you look at it from a holistic measure, from, from engineering culture, from the topics that Adriana and I most often discuss on these streams and our, and our posts, is that DevOps is really the, 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 the way to which in your company, design and design and you know building overlaps with delivery 
And mm -hmm. usually if there's a, we don't want to deploy on Friday, to me, that seems to be a, a symptom that there's a huge disconnect between production, between building and delivery. So my, 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 my first question is always, what are the consequences of this? What are the consequences of this? Like, it, does this benefit us in some way? Does it harm us in some way? If we start merging it together, will we accidentally create more problems? Like that, that's usually where I go with these topics. Like, how do you, how do you approach this? Adrian, you probably have your skin in, invested into this because you also run your own company while you're also managing the, the, the culture. Like, what's your experience with this? So, in my, in my opinion, in my experience, so it was not like, always good for us so it was the last year good for us last years good for us in the past it was like everyone was afraid to deploy so i know exactly about those fears actually so my question is more let's say uh, more like an obvious one so um it was in the past like when someone needed to deploy something on friday i was the one fixing it on saturday um, that was um, my past, and I hated it. And uh, I even had a consultant several years ago who told me that I should stop this. And um, he, he was totally right um, because um, you don't want to have this. This is uh, this can even lead to a form of toxic culture in the end, because um, you know it's about ownership, and this is the reason probably why you ask because of culture. So a culture of ownership and responsibility, which leads in the end to a mature way of working. So mature um, yeah, workflow or behaviors environment. And, and this is very important to understand. So everyone should feel responsible for the work he or she is actually pushing into some kind of versioning system. So for most developers I know out there, pushing a change is their definition of done, which is totally wrong. You shouldn't do this. I'm 100% I'm about this. You, don't do this because this is not responsible and I wouldn't work with you. Yeah. If you would do that and tell me you want to do it like that, okay, we don't work together because this is not good. Responsible means that my changes are then done when I got feedback from the person, from a stakeholder person, the client, user, business people, I don't know, someone who is responsible for it. And this person gives you the feedback that this is okay or not okay. And then you iterate until in the feedback cycle it's done and this includes the CI/CD pipeline continuous integration continuous delivery and feedback so communication means that you need to communicate by via phone via chat via email i don't know this this is up to you but you need to communicate and get the approval this is not about your team lead the, the, not about the product manager product owner or someone it's about you as a software developer if you don't do that you're just a programmer not, you're, not, you're not, not a software developer. A developer is the person who develops a feature. And development includes communication and feedback cycle. This is what I think about that. And when this comes together, when everyone is doing that in a team, you first of all have a DevOps culture. The second is you have continuous delivery mastered. And the third is you have a good supportive culture because everyone tries to do the best he or she can add to the team. And not like, oh, it's not my, my thing. Take a look, and then, then, it, then, in the end, it's no problem to deploy in each of, of those days. Doesn't matter actually. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, there's a very nice comment actually that I think it would be nice to show. So Bogdan was saying, "I like to separate deploy and releases processes. Deploy should be, yeah, deploy should be automated." Okay. Okay. <laughs> 
So machine is responsible for this. The only step when engineering is involved is to press the button deploy. Business de decide what and when functionality should be released. What is your point of view on this? Yeah, uh, that uh, is exactly also what, what I see that many teams or many uh, companies don't know differentiate with that. I deploy, it's going live, it affects customers yeah. and that could be an issue. But when we introduce uh, feature toggles, for example, like Wodan also um, uh, points at, we can deploy a lot of things without even uh, putting them live. And we can even put them live only for a small group of users, or we can put them live only for one tenant in a multi-tenant environment. And by this, we can control who gets it first, and we might be able to even test it in production, and then we know it works in production, because we can have a test tenant, for example, where we activate a feature, and we can run automated tests there, and we know that it also works in the production infrastructure, not just on some staging system with smaller data, less traffic, and all these things. So this is very helpful. And then also that provides the capability to the business to activate features for everybody once they are ready. And we can also quickly deactivate them if there is an incident. Because when in deployment, uh, like when the release goes wrong and we see, okay, there is an incident, then what are we doing? We can fix forward if we have a fast pipeline, but even easier, we can just deactivate that one feature in most cases. Mm -hmm. And then within seconds, we are back at a green state and everything runs fine for everybody again. So mm -hmm. that without also, a rollback. Yeah, without a rollback, exactly. And that reduces also, in my opinion and from my experience, the fear uh, of deployments because we know, okay, deployments are not the issue. We can do them 20 times a day with very small changes that are less likely to break anything. And we can right. release things. And if we see an issue with that, we roll back. And, uh, no, we don't roll back, but we deactivate the feature flag and we are uh, back uh, on a green and working state again. Uh, I want to add something to what you said, Adrian, um, about uh, the ownership. To me also, especially in companies that are not only like very, very early seed where you have a single engineer working on, on everything, it's always a team effort like the team is collaborating on a change or at least you have a review at some point to make sure that at least two people know what this change was about and that they feel comfortable also to own the change and that they know how to handle incidents if they happen. Is this an, a change that we can fix forward quickly? Do we need to roll back? Can we roll back? Uh, usually I would normally always go for fix forward or is there a feature flag somewhere that we just need to deactivate? And that also makes it easier because it reduces the pressure for a single individual to break something. Then it's yes. In my opinion, this can only be done if you have several things, several practices already implemented. For example, mm -hmm. short pipelines. If you want to roll forward and you want to have something like, oh, I saw I made a mistake. And in order to not be afraid of still pushing, you need mm -hmm. to have a way to, in let's say five minutes, get a get a let's say some form of fix up there, or not like thirty minutes of pipelining. And after twenty nine minutes, you realize the pipeline is still red, and you haven't delivered a fix. Um, so, okay. for all of those things, there are let's say some prerequisites. Like you um, need good pipelines, continuous delivery, those these, these ownership, or, or even feature problems. For those things, you still need to have some form of architecture in place uh, and some form of the ways how you actually work with code, which means that you only push um, in a way that it doesn't affect other parts of the code, for example. You know, um, 
in one commit there should only be one change you know um ideally in maybe only one push that you can separate things out having it's better to have more let's say more pushes uh, let's say yeah more pushes uh, in a row than having actually um, one large one because when something fails then you know what actually caused the, the, the yes. thing so would you agree with that or would you do it differently i completely agree with that um that that's also one of the reasons why I'm for deploying on Friday, because if we don't do that, we batch up the changes on Friday and bring them live on Monday. On Monday, nobody remembers what we did on Friday. So the surprises if things break are bigger and we have a lot of changes and need to figure out which of the changes was it. But when we deploy every small change, then um, the likelihood that this change breaks something is very small. And if it breaks something, we know exactly what, what change caused it. And that's also something when you when, we, when you remember the Dora metrics, for example, the change failure, right? There's an easy trick to get that uh, measure, metric down, like increase the number of changes, but, but have the same amount of failures, then this, mm -hmm. this metric improves. <laughs> that's right. I mean, holistically, you gotta, you gotta look at the whole aggregate picture. You can't just be focusing on one KPI. But to be honest, if every company was doing what, you, what you're suggesting, you and I would be out of business. So, so even though they, even though these seem to be good practices, in your experience, how you know what what amount of companies do things this way? Um, it depends on the state of the company. I would say uh, some some. Let's scope it down to startups. Like, do startups. most startups work like this? We know this to be a net positive benefit to them. Yeah. Why would they I... not work like this? How, yeah. how does this how does this problem evolve because they don't start like this and then they stop doing it my experience has been that they never even try yes right so it, it it isn't something that they start off a healthy habit and then become unhealthy and then they sort of try to go back mm -hmm. it seems that they are starting with something that is so anathema and so far away from this that then just even they're heading the wrong direction for years and then somebody like us comes in and tells them hey but why does it take two months to ship a feature yeah. yeah. So where does this all start? Yeah, I, I see. I, I see more startups not doing continuous deployments, and I see startups doing it. And I think the reason often is that in the beginning they scrap all the quality assurance automation that you can have there. So uh, it starts without any tests. It starts without thinking about tests because we need to ship fast and we need to get something but, out. We need to prove but, that things are working. To be honest, but why? Have you ever considered that? Like, why did they? What? Where does this belief come from that if we scrap automation, and we scrap testing, that we'll release faster? Yeah. Like, it, it must be that this scenario is true for somebody under some conditions. Mm -hmm. How come? Like, because continuous delivery is not a new topic. It sort of it started gaining popularity with the DevOps movements, with the release of the book, but at mm -hmm. least for the last ten years. It's been actively discussed, if not practiced. You know, we we, we spoke with Brian um, in chat last week, and we have evidence of some companies doing continuous delivery successfully since the 80s, since the 1980s, 1990s. How come this is? How can we constantly regress into cutting automation, into cutting? You know, why would a startup, a CTO? Who is intelligent and benevolent wants to consciously shirk these responsibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, 
something that I sometimes hear is that uh, automation is good when you already know how your processes look like and uh, your test automation when you know what you need to test and need to do. And as a startup, it's a lot of uh, trying around, uh, try and error, and you want to move fast before you run out of money, right? So you want to have something out there, ideally with customers, um, before uh, before it's too late and you're out of money. So you think in the beginning, okay, well, it's not a big software. We can auto, we can manually test the changes quickly, and it's okay if we deploy after that. So it feels it feels okay up to the point when it isn't, but then you already have the pressure of more customers, more feature requests, and you try kind of to to negotiate that and, and postpone it always later and later. And yes, you all know when you don't do tests from the beginning, you don't have a testable system quite often because it's very hard for engineers to build really great testable systems without writing the tests that prove that those are testable. And mm. then you are in this difficult situation that you have product work to do, like like building more features, fixing maybe also the bugs that customers now start to complain and you need to prepare for the next funding round. And like automation, test automation uh, sometimes falls short there, um, or at least it's not in a stable state that you could say, um, we can do this in the, in the pipeline. Uh, for example, in one company I worked with, they had some automated tests that were mostly, and this is an anti-pattern owned by a QA team, that uh, was yeah. running them on the deployment before doing the deployment manually. And those tests were very flaky also. And so it was impossible to bring them in the pipeline because as soon as you would have done that, the pipeline would always be red. And like, if we would use these tests as a blocker to deployment, that means even if there's an incident, we wouldn't be able to deploy. So um, the first thing there is to invest time in fixing the automated tests, make them fast, and bring them in the pipeline, for example, and that's where we. I, I posted. I posted yesterday a small post. wasn't wasn't a big thing, but um, several answered to that one, and that was about uh, what actual how small should your pipeline be, which indicates how easy it is to set up and how how much of a hurdle it is. So I have a pretty strong opinion about that because. We have many applications. Some are medium-sized, some are smaller, one or two are large. But all of them work like the same pattern. And for us, pipelining needs to be set up very fast. So I'm not talking about an hour. I'm talking about some minutes to set up a pipeline. And I'm, I'm talking about some minutes to run it. And I talk about a single figure thing. So what is your personal opinion? What should, you know, how, how hard? Should it be to set up a pipeline and how long should it run for a standard web application? Mm -hmm. For me, it's within like 10 minutes. I should run completely. Ideally with also, if you have end-to-end -end tests, they should also be included there, which also means you should not have a lot of end-to-end -end tests, but more of a unit integration tests that, mm -hmm. and maybe some contract tests that give you good confidence. And I, I think a pipeline needs to have as much in it as you need to be confident that it works and you can deploy. Exactly. If you say, okay, no, let's maybe keep it a bit on staging so that we might find bugs uh, accidentally by working on the staging system, that's like hope and hope is not a good quality assurance. So mm -hmm. uh, if oh, you can read the book, oh, that's a quote from <laughs> the book. You've read it. Cool. That's great to hear. Um, yeah, and so that means 
whatever it takes. If you say I'm fine with just having my, my unit test and I'm confident that my application works, fine, then ship it. But if you say, okay, I'm not sure if I can ship it, maybe not on Fridays, maybe maybe only after we used we tested it manually. <laughs> then I would say, okay, maybe there's something missing in the pipeline that gives you the confidence. Okay, but what do you think Dennis? Now is the question of when. You know, you said, okay, we do a trade-off, we're a startup, we don't know what we're doing, we don't know if our processes serve us, we pivot, 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 pivot. It seems that the only the only businesses that have this problem that we are discussing today are the successful ones, or at least the ones that are showing potential of success by virtue of growth. So startups don't do this, they encourage not to do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And then you either run out of business and you don't have this problem, or you show potential and you immediately have this problem. So it, it, this seems to be like, okay, not a problem, not a problem, not a problem. And then it's suddenly a huge problem if you're successful. So. <laughs> By by definition, all successful companies in their growth journey at some point have this problem. So it becomes a matter of timing. Like when mm -hmm. does it become, you know, when does it become pathological not to add? Like what is the litmus test? What, what is the okay, stop features, we need a pipeline? Like what is that moment? Is there something, is there some rule that we can follow? How do you how do you decide this? Because I from experience, I can tell I, I'm working with teams. And sometimes they have several projects. Maybe maybe they're doing some microservices, or maybe they have like multiple benevolent sort of distributed monoliths going on. And one project might have a pipeline, the other project might not have a pipeline. And sometimes it takes me pairing with somebody who is working on a project or their engineering manager, and they're and I'm watching them build something, and they've been on the project for two years, three years, and they don't have a pipeline like you just mentioned even though they have evidence of having a pattern on a different project. So it seems that they don't even have this sort of intuition, this litmus test of, oh, I'm not going to do any feature on this project, which seems to be Adrian's uh, standard. I'm not going to do any features on this project until I have at least a minimum pipeline. But what is that? Like, when should that, when should that intuition be developed and by whom on the team? I have a thought on this. Um... For me, it's also like one of the first things I do when I start a new project is to have this pipeline in place and to have some basic linting, basic checks, have a test framework in there that makes it easy to yeah. write some tests. And then I can also, then it is the, the barrier to writing tests is lower. And often I think that's and also with the pipeline, the barrier to extending a pipeline is lower than the barrier to creating a pipeline. At least this, this is my impression yeah. from uh, working with teams that often people don't know what it means to build a pipeline and they think because they don't know it's something very complicated and that takes a lot of time. And then when they are asked, okay, how long will it take? They say, I don't know, maybe two weeks. And then uh, somebody says, okay, then let's not do it now. We don't have time. We don't have two weeks for that now, uh, even though it's a small thing. So yeah. um, in general, I would say as early as possible, like from day one, I would have the pipeline. I would have testing in there, even if it's not testing much in the beginning, but then that I have a very low barrier to writing a test when I feel like I should really write a test here. And for me, that's most of the cases time. But because that's I, I do TDD. I do TDD. Yes, yeah, so exactly. exactly. I don't know how to write code without it. But that's also something that seems to be a net benefit for engineering culture in general, which again, most companies don't do. Right. So yeah. it seems to be that if you're an elite performer and you're and you're doing TDD, you're doing trunk-based development, you're doing small PRs, you have feature flags, you have 
um, branch by abstraction or no branches, or you're doing sort of, you're separating releases from deploys. It seems to be that if you're an elite performer, it's obvious to you that you need to do this and there is incentive to do this and it will speed you up if you do this. If you're not an elite performer, then you're already doing, you know, like it's it's like dumping a lot of overwhelm onto the low performing team. It's like, oh, you're low performing because you're not doing this, you're not doing this, and you're not doing this, and you're not doing this, and you're not doing this. But also you need a pipeline to give yeah. you a signal of how wrong you are on all of these areas. And then that becomes very discouraging. And yeah. sort of that kills the morale. It's like, oh, we have all these problems. Like, oh, why should I why should I start dealing with them? Mm. Right? So it then becomes this cultural problem in the company of yeah well, we all we like yes i would like to have a pipeline to run the tests but also we don't have tests and also i'm not running the tests because we don't have a pipeline so it, in my experience it quickly becomes this chicken egg problem where there are sort of circular dependencies going on of unsolved cultural pop problems of unsolved pipeline problems so where do you start like you know like it's very easy to say yeah you should be doing this and you should be doing that but generally with a with a, a growing company that has shown potential of success, they want features, they want a new psychographic, a new demographic, a new a new experiment out by Christmas. Um, when and how does this sort of unraveling of the pipeline happen? I, I'm returning back to this topic because it's still not clear to me yeah. whether whether it's does it take just mistakes and it has to be the most experienced engineer who decides this? Because you said you do this intuitively. I also do this intuitively. Adrian does this intuitively. I've met another, a lot of engineers who do not do this intuitively, but complain about it, but do nothing about it. So that kind of relationship, I would say, okay, it's either their manager or their leader or somebody who's more experienced. <laughs> but now you and I are in business because we talk to CTOs and they also don't have this intuition. So how do you solve this problem? Whose problem is this? Should the engineers just start building pipelines willy-nilly? Uh, should it be the CTO? Should it be an SRE, the CEO asking for better confidence in the in the engineering team? Like, what, how does this start? What gets the snowball rolling? Yeah, lots of lots of questions there. Um, maybe <laughs> let's start with the first one, uh, with, with one of them. Uh, who who should build the pipeline? And for me, it's like who owns the pipeline? And for me, it's the same team that owns the thing that is deployed with this pipeline because it's mm -hmm. part of the deployment process that should be owned by this team. It's, and it's part of this feedback cycle, getting things to production, getting feedback back, monitoring another topic uh, we haven't talked about yet. And yeah, um, so that's the team. And then I'm not the person going to teams and saying them, you should do this, you should do that, you should do this, mm -hmm. because who am I to tell them? But what I'm what I do is I see where do they have pain points, where are they frustrated, and then I lead them to, to a point where they say, we should really write tests. And then mm -hmm. we can talk about, okay, why why do you not write tests? And then it can be, we don't have time for that. And then we say, okay, why do you don't, not have time for that? Okay, we have too much pressure from product. Okay, mm -hmm. why? where come, does this pressure come from? Is this real pressure or is this mm -hmm. just perceived pressure? And you could just say, no, we don't have time to for the next feature we first need to fix. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. this situation and have tests because we are then faster. And that comes also a bit down then to the uh, barriers uh, um, in improving developer experience. Um, if you have read the, the paper, I think um, DevX what actually drives developer productivity from Avinoda at all. Avinoda, yeah. uh, I think they, they mentioned Space those, paper, yeah. essentially. Um, yeah, there, there's a later paper from, from this year um, mm -hmm. that 
focuses on the on the developer experience more. And I think there they also have these these barriers, 10, 10 things. And one is of course also the lack of ownership. So uh, people don't know that they should own something or they assume somebody else is, is owning that, but mm -hmm. that other person doesn't doesn't know that and nothing happens. And here a CTO can can step in very easily and say, well, I this is part of the job. I expect that teams have this kind of standard that they have a pipeline, that they have tests. And this is important to the business, by the way. And it's okay to take time for that. And yes, we, we make this a project. This can be a like a bold engineer who says, we cannot work without that. It doesn't make sense. We cannot achieve our, our the quality we want. Um, or it can also be, of course, a lead, a, a manager, a CTO, whatever, who creates kind of the space for engineers to figure that out. Shall we look at chat? Because yes, I'm getting yes. Camilla, can you? Uh, because um, we need to deliver on our promise that we include the audience. Otherwise, we get a riot, and we don't want to yeah. have a riot. There's a riot already. Yeah, Let's yeah. go. Yes. <laughs> so where uh, we I'll start. start. Camilla, where we start? So the first one is the small changes, sets, quick feedback loops, and a high level of observability are a key to writing teams of fear of deploying. This was about what we talked about, this fear of deploying on Friday or, I don't know, during the weekend, etc. And I think it's actually pretty summing up everything that we were saying here before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something to add to this? To be honest, you mentioned monitoring and observability. Like, it's the, you know, I think we do have a question on this down the line, but sort of for the perspective, no, uh, if you could. Yeah. Um, yeah, Wade also mentions here. Hi, Wade. By the way, um, good to see you here. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's true. Like if you if you don't know like if the thing actually works, and you only hear that by angry calls from customers, yeah, that increases the fear. And the nice thing about having good monitoring and alerting in place is that you know that the software isn't working before your customers know, and you might even fix this before uh, your customers know. And sometimes, like we had, this, I mean, things go wrong. There, there are incidents. No matter how how good your quality insurance is, how how much of testing you have up front, at some point you chip something, and in production it misbehaves, and um, there are there are incidents. But uh, it's really nice when you are already fixing an issue, and then the customer success team tells you that there we have uh, a customer complaining about this, and then we say, okay, okay tell them it's it's fixed in five minutes. So this is this is quite nice because we are already working on the fix and it's already on the pipeline and we know it just takes a couple of minutes to be live and that that reduces the the pain. <laughs> uh, for the next question, there was a question actually. So the pipeline requires some sort of balance or business decision. I faced projects where stakeholders were really happy about having a great pipeline, CI/CD, with enough end-to-end -end tests there to provide enough trust on using to avoid bugs any issues before we deploy to environments or share stuff with clients. But the cost goes quite high easily. So mm -hmm. how do you find a proper way to balance this situation? Hello, Raul. Raul is becoming a regular in our on our stream. So great, great question. Great question. Thank you. Tobias, I, I think this is a question about cost effectiveness. And, and, the, and it seems to be that this is a... It's interesting because I have the feeling that... that, that pipelines actually help us or continues delivery to reduce costs. Exactly. That was my, so I'm not really sure well. how the cost. Oh, actually, uh, we, we have in, in CTO fellowship where we help other organizations. We have that quite often. This is the post yesterday. I posted about this. There was this line. Someone asked what can be, let's say, unnecessary in a pipeline or even yeah, yeah. what. And um, 
there are so many things where people basically fix their dev issues in ops mm -hmm. during the pipeline you know and That's this right. is i think where a lot of bad costs are coming from so when you don't know what you actually do with a pipeline mm -hmm. it's likely that you run into costs because you put too much stuff you should actually exactly. have done for example within a docker container within yep. your application within the code instead of having some form of jobs out there which first of all mm -hmm. uh, extends the overall runtime of your pipeline and um, let's say the rate of issues maybe make mm -hmm. the make the whole pipeline flaky so it's basically unpredictable if it's red or green and you don't really or know you don't trust or, or exactly. it's green and you don't trust it that's even worse or it's, it's red and you deploy anyway because you don't trust the red so maybe Ra Raul, maybe you can uh, post in the comment what, in your opinion, is yeah. cause for the costs. That would be interesting. But sorry, I was interrupting uh, Tobias. Sorry. No, actually, you weren't. It's good that you are also participating. <laughs> and, um, I feel like I'm talking a lot, um, but I'm happy with that also. Um, for me, I've seen a lot of costs coming from having too many end-to-end tests, actually. And yeah. This yep. is the question, what, yep. how much is enough? Uh, or you also mentioned end-to-end um, -end tests um, and having enough. And the question is, what really is enough? End-to-end -end tests are one of the most expensive tests, as Brian also mentions here, um, that we can, can have in a system. And also, uh, they are also the ones that seem to be the most flaky most of the times. So now, there are really some frameworks that help us to make them more stable. Uh, nowadays, uh, the situation improved, uh, like coming from uh, experience with uh, Selenium and some other like Cypress and now using Playwright that really helped us also to stabilize tests for example but that's only part of it they are also slow because they need the entire system and they are expensive because they fail very late so the feedback comes in quite late and of course mm -hmm. we need them to figure out why did they break again okay just be renamed a selector yeah this is not this is not a change in behavior that the user cares about it's just a, be a change in be um in structure kind of that the test care about. And um, in my opinion, it makes sense to reduce the amount of end-to-end -end tests. We had this situation in the past when we had this dedicated QA team that were doing the end-to-end -end testing. They created a lot of end-to-end -end tests. And this was, of course, a very good intention by them to do this, to make sure on the end-to-end -end test level that they can be 100% sure that the system works. But when we integrate the QA people more in the, uh, in the teams, you know, like not in having this QA silo at the end, but having them as part of the value streamlined teams. We had discussions. Why do we have this end-to-end -end test? And we said, okay, to test this and this. And then we said, okay, but actually we don't need that because we test this on the um, unit integration level. And it's very unlikely that things break uh, when those tests are green. So we can say, okay, we are comfortable with removing them and one less end-to-end -end test is enough. And this can also bring down the time um, of end-to-end -end tests and the cost for maintaining them, for example. Um, the next question will be actually about end-to-end -end tests in production. Mm -hmm. What do you say about this? Hmm. I love it. But I would take a note here, and this is going to be, for those of you who are watching live, this is going to be some free coaching now, so pay attention. <laughs> the, point, the point of your pipeline is not to answer the question, does it work? Yeah. That's not the point. The point of the pipeline is to answer the question, is it safe to merge if it's blocking a merge? If, it's, if you're doing trunk-based development and there is a sort of during the pipeline, sort of during merge activity, not really a blocker, then the question is, is it safe to deploy? Not is it safe to release, is it safe to deploy? 
because the initial assumption is that unless it has already made contact with the customer, you don't know whether it works. Works in the business sense. Will this provide revenue? Will this provide value on one of the value streams or the revenue streams for the business? Now, you cannot do that. You cannot answer that question in absence of a customer. You can only answer that question by giving it to the customer. And this illusion that end-to-end tests somehow give you an answer to this question is nonsense. Mm-hmm. Because end-to-end tests only help you find issues that have already happened by virtue of being reported by a user of being problematic. And that's usually what they do. You, you deploy something, the user complains, and then you, and it's, and you figure out that it's something to do with the UI, usually. It's something graphical or cosmetic. And then you capture that problem with an end-to-end test. But that only helps you deal with regression tests. And it's okay to run those in production. Like that, that's my opinion. But those should not be your main tests in the pipeline because they do not give you confidence that the new thing you just created will be safe in production. That's it. That's the question you want answered. And when it is safe in production, you roll that baby out. You don't do, let's find a problem. Because that's, that's the number one thing I see a lot of people do. I think it's safe to merge, but let, let's let's look for all the problems. Mm-hmm. And they are then doing like this weird inspection QA where they think quality will magically appear after they have designed, after they have built, after they have implemented everything already with some predefined notion of what quality looks like yeah. in a company. And that's the problem. That is then the wasteful part. It's like, oh, well, now we're building in quality too late. So the, the real important question is the, the real business side. What is the business behind my code? The, that answer to that question only comes in production. So what you should be focusing on is having a pipeline that rolls out changes to production as fast and as safely and as securely and as responsibly as possible. Because that's where you get your main answers. Now, that doesn't mean that you roll out a broken thing and then you test manually. The point is that you want to make sure that the company has contact with the customer and that they can have a little feedback conversation going on. That's the point, because there will always be feedback. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this goes actually very well with the next comment. Um, it's basically talking about the loss of trust and abundant supply of risk and tolerance, talking about the pipeline. So you will never replicate the vagaries of the internet in test environments. Stop wasting time in endless test cycles and get it out to production as soon as possible, which is yeah. what we all want. Once you already created everything, tested it, it has to go out. Because there's some bugs that we'll never catch otherwise. Yeah, we all um, use LinkedIn every day and it's buggy. So, no. Oh my God, don't. <laughs> sure don't LinkedIn is the best example for <laughs> quality software. Yeah. Ever tried to, to invite people to an event? <laughs> ah, new experience. Next. So this is going back to role regarding cost. I mean, for example, the situation where as we do in CI for every commit on a PR or similar stuff uh, later on when the company decides to. I lost my track here, uh, Tobias. Um, Adrian, how do you interpret this? Is this connected with the previous question? I'm still interpreting what you're saying. So Raul says in this previous question, how to balance the cost. Yeah, how to balance the expenses. So I'm assuming there are expenses with building mm-hmm. end-to-end tests and operational expenses with running end-to-end tests. Like usually end-to-end tests are provided by some third party. You know, if you're doing a lot of playwright, if you're doing a lot of Cypress, there might be external services that then allow you to do that on like a swarm where you, you know, if you're developing for mobile, then they might have 
dedicated machines for you that you can rent. I think I think it's connected with that. But Ru, please connect us. Please, please let us know if you misinterpret this. So regarding cost, I mean, he has a point. Like if you're doing that, why are we doing this? Like, does it actually save money? Like, is the amount of money we invest into having a CI pipeline that runs end-to-end tests actually net positive at the end of the day? It's probably not only about end-to-end tests, but it's also about the question on on what are we running our um, tests, like also the other tests, like because these are computational resources that cost some money, it costs some time. Um, maybe we need to spin up uh, even a, like a staging system for, for that or like a review app in, in GitLab if you do this on a, a merge request. Uh, these kind of things cost us money. And the question is, is it is it worth it? And that's probably not an, a question that you can answer generally, but you need to answer what does the dev team get from that? And uh, how much time is it saving um, in contrast to not doing it? For example, what would happen if we just push everything without running tests. And if we merge everything, if we have a merge request without seeing on the merge request that this is green or mm. only seeing it on the, the merge request itself, but not for every commit there. Mm-hmm. And that can, the answer can be now the teams need to look for, for hours to find out which commit broke something. Oh, and then that's the worst. Have, that's cost. The, yeah. That's the worst. That's, that's real cost. And then like spending a couple of hundreds or even thousand euros a month on on that, depending on the size of the company, isn't really uh, worth talking about. I mean, if you if you uh, take out the idea of end-to-end tests now, which are costly, you know, and you only have the standard pipelining, you know, uh, build, test, deploy, and you know, we're talking about some dollars or euros a month. So it's for a team on a, one product. You know, it's like like to just ten take an application with ten different services inside. So we're talking about below 100 euros you know this is this is what we see so i don't see costs there actually they save us costs but of course if you do let's say if you have let's say it's more like the initial question you gave me about the engineering culture the practices the methodologies if you have those wrong in place this those are the prerequisites i was talking about if you have those wrong you have high costs. It's not the pipeline itself. So mm-hmm. if you manage to have a pipeline of 30 minutes runtime and you push, push, push against this pipeline, of course it doesn't work. Yeah. So you need to have a pipeline which runs very fast so in order that it can keep up with the idea of continuous delivery. That, and actually, actually, that's a very good point because even though the pipeline is automated, the point of the pipeline is that you see it fail and then you stop doing what you're doing and then you've now because what's the point by continuous delivery if you have continuous delivery it won't run and crash at midnight why exactly because nobody's committing at midnight yeah so if you have a slow pipeline it takes four hours to run if you commit something at 4 p.m and go home well that's irresponsible because you'll receive feedback on the pipeline at 8 p.m and now somebody has to wake up and come back to work and fix the pipeline so the whole, the whole point of having the pipeline run fast is that you get feedback immediately whether this is going to cause a problem before you start working on the next thing. So it becomes part of your workflow rather than a problem for tomorrow. Because if it's a problem for tomorrow, then you have outage between while everybody was asleep. Like that's the main point of the pipeline. The pipeline isn't automatic. It won't heal the production problems by itself. The point is that when you hit commit, that you get to fix it immediately, that you don't have to wait two weeks 
until somebody else presses deploy and then you have this sort of hand back of here's a report of everything you've committed in the last two months and here are all the bugs please please take time to estimate and triage this and put it back on the uh, on the sprint backlog because you're now working on something completely different <laughs> like that's the that's the main issue that we're trying to solve here here's a question about a startup yeah. right yeah uh, so as a first startup i think oh sorry yeah, please read it because some some may only listen yeah as a fresh startup, I think you should use the abilities resources you have. You have no clue about good and fast automation in this stage. It is a hell to learn and set it up by, all by yourself. So you have to prioritize. At the beginning, you also have not so much functions and also a better user group and so on. So I don't know. Tobias, you look like you want to answer the question. It's it's not it's not a question it's a statement I think and I, I think yeah. this is this is something uh, that goes into what you said before Dennis or ask why is it that many startups don't have that and the answer is exactly this uh, not knowing how to do it and then it's a lot of effort to do it right so you postpone it maybe also in the hope that at some point you might get somebody on board who is more experienced and can take ownership of that and I don't like to admit it but in a startup context this might make even sense to um to like focus on the things that we can do right now and that we can do well and that we really need to do in order to get feedback from customers uh but also my hope for the entire uh community is kind of that we have that more people rise to the level where they are comfortable with setting up automation and automated testing and um, a good pipeline so that this is more likely to be something that uh, more startups do from day one because it improves it improves the developer experience it improves the ability of the startup to move fast without breaking too much things and it is it makes everything just just easier and just better i mean at the beginning of course like if production goes down with just a couple of better users who cares maybe nobody but that's not the good state to be when you have a lot of customers and between this, we are very small and uh, unimportant and nobody cares about us, so um, everybody cares about this, uh, can be uh, just a month, and then uh, it's very difficult to to get up the quality right. So, yes, you 20, said something. Oh, go ahead, sorry. 20 <laughs> years ago, um, I, the only way to figure out things was to either try it yourself, read books, or buy some tech magazines. There was nothing else, maybe some conferences here and then. Uh, back then, we needed to learn it ourselves. But when I, I read in this comment, for example, um, there is this, let's say, predefined notion, the idea that hard. we need to do it ourselves. We need to find it our, you know, for ourselves. Why? Why don't you ask just some people to help you? Yeah. Um, you know, it is so essential to get your foundation right, you always build something onto a foundation. So if you don't have a foundation, you will you won't be able to place the entire product on it. So you will mm -hmm. you will basically or eventually run into some severe problems you could avoid. This this is already a hidden strategic decision you do there as a startup lead. Mm -hmm. So if you don't know about something, you should start to know about it right now. So you can just do that by asking people asking people like Tobias like like Dennis um, read about this read the newsletters they often write stuff about that and it is not complicated the setup of a basic pipeline that's even if you don't have a pass solution you just build up a pipeline 
For example, go to GitHub Actions, you know, set up an account, go for a demo pipeline. If you are, you know, you, you get used to it in day one. It is only about build what you, you, know, you have already done everything on your PC. You have a build command somewhere, you have a test command somewhere. And on some point, you need to put the artifact onto some system. Okay, this that, is most of the time. Most I hate GitHub Actions. Just... Yeah, it's just an example because it's very easy to get. So we, we don't use it anymore as well. So we, we are focusing entirely on past system because those make it even easier, especially for startups who don't need big things like this. So setting up a pipeline is, is a matter of some minutes, if you know how. And this isn't it's that It's not optional. From what I'm hearing on the call, setting up a pipeline is not optional. It's 2023. It is almost mm -hmm. irresponsible to not have it. If your startup is beyond the bootstrap stage, and, um, and there are a lot of examples out there how you create a pipeline for whatever tech stack you are using. Like mm -hmm. you can go to GitLab and read in the documentation. They give you examples. You can basically copy them and paste them, and you have something already, and then you can improve from there. So you don't need to start at zero, which can be hard. Uh, and I think that makes it a lot easier. And also now with like things like ChatGPT, for example, you can also uh, ask questions to, if you don't understand things and it can help yeah. you to understand things a bit better. Um, so it yeah. gets easier and easier to build pipelines. You have a great comment on um, screen by Brian. Yes. So Brian was saying, I was asked once how big you could, big you should be before having a platform team to make pipeline creation easy. My answer was as soon as you have more than two small teams. More than two small teams. So at team three, you build team three and the platform team. So you go from two to four. Um, the question is maybe, class. Brian, can you answer that as well? Um, yeah. Is the platform team actually a team of people or could it be, in your opinion, a single team. person, an external person, um, for example, someone in the company who knows about ops? What is in that small setup a platform engineering team? Great, great detail. And Tobias, you mentioned something important earlier um, regarding most leaders hope that they can ignore the pipeline until they hire somebody who accidentally is experienced enough in building a pipeline. So they will say, what the hell is going on? I'll build the pipeline. Um, and I think most of my clients, and please tell me if you have a similar experience, most of my clients are those that we're hoping to do that, and they've noticed that the level of engineering culture that emerged from just relying on this strategy started declining rather than increasing. Yeah. So yeah. usually they say, okay, we tried everything. We are starting to see the repeat of the same problems with every recruitment generation. So now we need a coach. Now we need somebody who has already seen the, not just tried it and failed, but all, also has, has seen the light at the end of the tunnel. I need I need hands-on uh, sort of they need hands-on evidence that this is actually a solvable problem in their company because they have a lot of evidence they have a lot of data that this is a recurring problem that they can't um, weather that they it's just a hurdle they can't jump over. Mm -hmm. What's your experience on this? Um, yeah, it's 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 the same actually. It's uh, it's. Um... Yeah, same same experience there. And like, if you like, you set a standard, right? And if the standard is not having a pipeline and not having tests is okay, then people will learn that this is the standard of the company. Unless you have somebody, and you will who... attract and you will attract a, a caliber of engineers 
who thrive in such an environment and have possibly a ceiling on their growth. Either that or, or um, people who have like the strong desire to change something and to, to, to fix that and to bring in like software craft principles to, yeah. to bring up the standard. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, of course, hope. Or you need to explicitly hire for those people. For example, one startup we are working on, they have they have no tests uh, or they had no tests um, mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning and uh, they are not yet at automated deployments because it's, it's a process to getting there when you don't start there. Yeah. Um, that takes several steps. And um, now they are explicitly looking for people who are not great, only engineers like who know how to code, but who also know how to test what they do and who who enjoy uh, writing tests and who say, okay, this is for me important because this belongs mm -hmm. to uh, creating working software. I would so like a... to... Uh, oh. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I would like to comment uh, on Brian's comment, actually. Uh, because for me, uh, I, I agree uh, with that. Uh, I've seen that uh, we have done this in the developer experience team, for example. Um, we were more teams then, but uh, to yeah, template uh, GitLab uh, jobs so that every team that needed to build a Vue.js front and just needed to inherit from a certain base job or include a certain template. And then they had the pipeline that triggered the common commands that pulled in the right Docker containers for every build step that were optimized by us. So every pipeline was just a couple of lines of code that was so much easier to maintain. Of course, we also documented how that looked. And that's great, but it's only great if those teams have uh, sim uh, enough similarities. If the teams yep. use very different technology, I think you don't have so much uh, surface error where you can work as a platform team to provide something that mm -hmm. really helps. There need to be patterns in the organizational culture. Otherwise, you'll just have to figure it out. Yeah. uniquely for each team and that just sucks like there's no way around that there's no capital efficiency here with the platform team to be extracted yeah Sadly. and and that's also something the teams need to be aware of we sometimes had done this discussion when we were the developer experience team as a platform team okay um now we want to do something completely different for example at that time uh, we didn't have any cloud functions um on uh, uh, or like uh, lambdas on aws and they wanted to, to use them and to, to build something with them. And we said, that, that's great. Um, but be aware that you are leaving the, the platform that we already have. So everything else that deploys to Kubernetes and the frontends and so on, we have abstractions to make it easy. The other thing is perfectly fine to do them. We are happy to join you on a call and share like the knowledge that we have or that we might not have in that case um, with you. But you own that and you build it and it might be more complicated than you are used to it but it's okay and if more teams want to do this then we can see how we can build a platform around it mm -hmm. it's the same like if, if just one customer wants a feature you are not going to build it but if a lot of customers need the same feature or you see similarities between what customers need you find a way to build that in the product and in the end the platform also is just a product so we have three more questions. Nice. Balash, hello. Hello, Balash. Also one of our regulars. Great to have you with us. So the question is directed to Adrian. Whom do you ask? Where do you find a person regarding setting up the pipeline? Mm -hmm. Sometimes even inside a company, it's hard to start a bit longer conversation if the management throws upon the engineering feature after feature. Don't refer to tech lead. No such exists if the management is a little bit like tech savvy because the company tries to be effective. Mm -hmm. um, 
yes, as I said already, it is not a shame to ask for help outside of your company. So uh, first of all, you know, you need to think about your requirements, your qualities. What do you want to achieve? What is your context? You know, um, do you have enough budget? Do you are you a, basically a funded startup or are you a bootstrap startup? Are you a traditional company? So those are all different in context. So you need to ask yourself, are your own people able to do that? So even in a, in a, in a DevOps team, you don't necessarily need someone who knows how to set up those things. It's more like they you DevOps is about using those things, but it's uh, it's not about setting them up. So it's totally fine to have someone like Brian said, an engineering team can be internal, external, can be a coach, it can be a freelancer who's helping you out until you understand. Just make sure that your team starts to learn that. So don't make yourself dependent on others. This is very important. Um, learn that. So in my opinion, finding someone, first of all, take a look into your own teams. Is someone of your team, let's say, ops-skilled enough to do that? You know, uh, Take a look for easy solutions. This is one of the first things. So as a small startup with two people, don't go to AWS. Don't do that. You, If you don't have a very specific reason to go to such a very complicated thing, don't do that. Go to something which is fitting your requirements into your context. Go to some uh, some past solutions who are helping you out uh, with those things by, for example, um, uh, making infrastructures code just with a Docker Compose file, which is quite easy even for developers to understand. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, go up level by level and ask yourself, is there someone else we can hire? Is there, you know, go from, from internal to external. This is what I would say about that. But keep it as simple as possible. You know, don't overextend with too fancy because someone is offering your credits. I see that so often that people get credits from some public cloud providers uh, try to lure you into something where you are vendor locked in later on and you don't get out there. People burn out because it's way too complicated for them and freelancers are way too costly for that startup at that moment. Stay with your context. It's totally fine to be a small business. It's totally fine. Don't think you need to be this or that on, on, on this or that platform to yeah. be trendy or something like that. That's nonsense. Find automation that solves your problems that not problems that you predict you might have or not problems that you saw evidence of, oh, it was okay to ignore it, but just it's a problem, okay. Did ignoring it work? Okay. Is it still serving you? I always ask, one of the main questions I ask, and this is still in reference to Balaj's question, um, is what is the what is the benefit of doing this? You know, if somebody, if an engineer tells me, Dennis, I don't have time to write tests. Okay, what is the benefit of that? Like, how do we benefit? How do you benefit time by not writing tests? I have it, I'll have it pushed faster. Okay. What if there's a problem? Like, do you know that it's safe to merge? Or once you push, will you then go and do exploratory testing? Mm. Right, because they might they might actually have a good strategy and they might actually be so experienced with doing that strategy manually that to them is more efficient to do it themselves. The problem is that most of these problems regarding how to, how to adopt this are ego-driven, especially in small companies. It is, has nothing to do with like rational business decisions. It's just egos. It's like, I am doing heroics. And if you haven't read the book, The Phoenix Project, I would very, very wholeheartedly recommend it. Where there's somebody who says, this is really hard to deploy. I need to deploy it and I need to test it because I'm really good at it. It's really hard. And it's these, these heroics 
that keep making introducing pipelines difficult. And the only way, the only way to deal with that is to say no more heroics. You finish it, okay, I need to be able to deploy it. Not you. So you will watch me deploy it. And then if you if that makes you nervous, good. That's a signal that we need a pipeline for this. And usually that's how I that's how I'm dealing with like like very large egos in the in 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 these kinds of organizations because it's, it's human. Yeah. We've all been there. We've all worked with somebody like this. The problem is when when they also happen to be working on the most critical infrastructure or the most critical feature or maybe they're the the person with the most technical experience or maybe they are maybe they're a person with who has a lot of informal authority so they have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders and very little support. Maybe they're a CTO in a startup. You know, don't, as Adrian mentioned, don't be ashamed to ask for help. I run a book club now with, which basically attracts a lot of CTOs and technologists. And one of their major, major benefits is that they get to talk to other CTOs because the CTO role is a very lonely role. There's mm -hmm. nobody to mentor you and you're in your organization. Your boss will, will, will be what? Stakeholders, shareholders, uh, the founders. They're all non-technical, so you have nobody to learn from. So you gotta sort of peer, peer educate yourself by talking to other CTOs in other companies. Even if you're just a founding engineer, you still need to talk to other founding engineers to figure out, okay, what should I do next? Like, I think we should have had a pipeline for a very long time, but we sort of never really got around to it, and now it's expensive. Like, what is the best course of action here? Just be open to asking that question to somebody who's technical outside of your organization. And if you want to do that privately, well, that's why. Coaches and consultants like Tobias and myself exist. Uh, that would be sort of my long-winded answer to, to Balaj's question. It's usually human. It's usually ego-driven. So try to figure out whether relying on that person to do heroics is a net benefit to the company. If not, create some, you know, create incentives to stop doing that. Okay, for the next question. Uh, this is a question for the panel. Imagine you are a technical founder of a startup and you want to create a culture of courage and confidence. What qualities and traits must you first engineering hires possess? Cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tobias, how do you see engineering cultures like that? How would you answer the question? Um, probably I forget something, but I can I can give give it a try, and you can you can add the things that you're seeing. So. For me, like especially uh, first first hires like uh, like lead engineers, they should have a high quality standard, and they should have ideally seen um, like what it means not to have tests, and they need to have this strong why. Why am I creating tests? Not maybe not just because I read a book that it's good to write tests, but really because I've suffered from not having tests in, in some mm -hmm. other place. That that really helps, and. Of course, there should be people who also care about customers and product and uh, can find the balance between that. Because you need, in the beginning, you need, especially in the beginning, but also later on, you need to have this honest discussion, like what are we doing or what are we not doing at the moment, um, like in order to find the right balance between getting features out, but also building the right quality, quality in. And also it helps if they know how to technically, for example, build the pipeline uh, introduce tests uh, so to have that from day from day one and onboard everybody they then hire with the same standard and with like or like to raise the bar constantly about what it means to to build this product and to have a great product that makes customers happy but that is also to maintain and that is 
with this vision of existing long-term, not just we build something and then I'm not there in three months and uh, then it's not my problem anymore. So these are things that I see. What comes to your mind, Adria? Um, I would say the very first person you hire in a startup is not a great programmer. You know, it, it's, a, it's a great senior developer. It's a great senior, you know, senior. A person who takes care of the surrounding, of the environment, thinks about things, you know, make thoughts, is aware of making decisions. This is the first person you need. Why do you not need a programmer? Because I never see a single occasion where a fast and good programmer made the difference of a successful product or not. Never. The programmer is a good pro, you know, programming is a technical skill. If it takes three more days, it doesn't cut the mustard. It's, it's not the difference of an successful product. So if and a startup is all about a successful start, and for this, you need to, we talked about foundations, we need to lay the right, right foundation. So a person, a good senior person who has a broad overview of things, he must not be a professional in every of those cases. He must not even be good at one single thing, but understand all of them. Understand what happens if we're going this route, what happens if we're going this route, and understands when to ask others. This is very important, you know? Not being the person who say the, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know? Um, you don't need to have... that. That is the very first thing you need to avoid is someone with a Dunning-Kruger effect um, in your team. You need to have someone who's thinking for the entirety of the company, of the product, of the team, of the future things coming to lay a foundation for what is to come and not what is the first feature to build. Yeah. This is my opinion about that. I've been in situations like this often, like half of my career, so in my, let's say, last 15, 16 years, eight years I've spent in startups and various different kinds of startups. And I, I need to emphasize a timeline. Like I don't know if our audience, do, do let me know in chat, but the timeline is important if you have experience with the timeline of a startup. Like you have sort of a joker card, I'm a startup, I can break the rules. For six months six months that means that if you're a startup and you've been around for three years it's time to grow up there's no more oh we're not doing this because because we are startup excuse like if you're around for more than six months six months is how long you need to build an mvp or prototype at the worst case mm -hmm. once you're past that stage no more excuses you need professionals you need mature professionals right so not a coder who is a very good at programming, but you need a software engineer who is a very responsible professional. And I think for your first hire, my recommendation would be that if you're thinking about, if you're a technical founder on a startup, you shouldn't assume that you are the CTO and you will remain the CTO forever. You should assume that you are somewhere between an engineering manager and VP of engineering and the company will at some point hire you a boss. So what you need to make sure is that whoever you hire won't immediately in the next round require a manager. So you should be hiring somebody who is immediately a good fit to working with you, who does not need like extreme levels of management. Like, because a lot of people go to the extreme of, oh, we'll just hire like five juniors on this agency. And then, and then the agency sells you a manager and a PO and, 
And it just, it, it's, it's the amount of process that comes with this that is so invasive and they bring their own culture that you as, your, as, as a growing business, as a startup, are robbed of the experience of building your own pipeline. Yeah. You should never, 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 never hire an agency or a staff augmentation company to give you a like uh, ready to order process. You, uh, you should part of the startup experience to figure out what is going to be our process, what is going to be our product and what is going to be the process that builds our product and mm -hmm. sort of iterate on both. That is DevOps. Yeah. If you say I need the product ASAP, I'm going to outsource process then the process will take over. Yeah. The process always wins. The, your, your environment will always win. If your environment sucks and it was set up by an agency who was cutting costs and they were driving up their own profits by giving you end-to-end -end tests, guess what? Now you're stuck with that. That is now defining the future of your product. And if that doesn't work, I got news for you. You got to throw away the process and start from scratch. And often that means throwing away everything. The code base, the process, some... Yeah features, maybe even some clients, maybe even say, saying goodbye to some clients because they were built and verified on the wrong premise. And you have now built something on shaky foundations that has a ceiling on how far they can grow. And if you're a startup, you're probably looking for a at least 15x valuation. So you need to grow 2x in the first few years, year to year, and then do a smaller growth spurt between year four and year five. You're not going to get there linearly from you know growing to somewhere and then incrementally improvement. You need drastic change, and that drastic change requires a leader. Perhaps, perhaps the first generation of leader asked this question. Um, for the technical, for the for the for the non-technical founder who is working with this person, I would say, whatever decision you make, have a clear plan of how you will evaluate whether you have successfully done so or not every few every few cycles. Now, whatever the cycle is for you, I don't know. It should definitely be a smaller cadence than your primary financial rounds. If you're getting if you're getting financing every, I don't know, 12 months, 16 months on the on cliff periods, I would say you should evaluate your process, your processes and your hiring strategy and your product strategy every eight to 12 months. At the, you know, that is a sort of minimum, ideally more frequently. I like to, um, first of all, very great answer so far. Um, I really like that. This is a very important topic. Um, but I want to ask Camilla as well. Camilla is a junior developer. Uh, let's say quite new in the, in the IT tech sector anyway. So what would your perspective, what would you expect when you join a company, a very small company, let's say there are just two or three others inside there. What would you expect of the very first person, the let's say head of IT person in that company, what would you expect when you join a company like this? Um, right. So for me, to be honest, I think um, a pipeline is the utmost necessary to check everything, because this gives me as well the confidence that I can work properly. Right. If I build something, what is my definition of done? Like I build something, I test something, I push, I check if it's deployed. Right. So if I can't build a pipeline right now because I'm a junior developer. I will learn at a certain point, but at this point, I need someone that actually provides this environment where I can work, correct? So if this is not provided, if you don't have a good environment or even like this good culture of thinking what is actually done, how can I handle the pipeline? 
this all needs to be set up. So if I would need get a new tech lead and I would need to get the requirements very clear of what is expected for me to do, how do they work in the environment and how do we work as a team? Because in this case, I will have some questions and it will have some questions maybe even on bugs or wrong deployments or something that happened. And I need to know that even if I tested everything, I'm going to have like my peers backing me up and checking, okay, the pipeline is not going. We stop everything and we check everything, mm -hmm. right? Because this is the most important thing. It needs to be deployed. It needs to be okay because it's going live. It's in production, right? Um, so for me, this part of the culture will be very important for sure. Um, as well. It's cool as that you mentioned actually the end on court. <laughs> Sorry? It's, it's a, the end on court. It's basically you said when something is wrong, everyone stops and fixes this problem before the team goes on to the next one. Otherwise, you stack sure. multiple problems up at the same time mm -hmm. and you want to have a con, con. So, this is great. You actually understand what sometimes, just sorry to say that, but sometimes seniors don't understand. This is very interesting. Just wanted to say that. I mean, I had a great culture. I had a great group of talking about this. That's the thing, you know, I was a junior developer that just started, I mean, I, I transitioned from biology to working in engineering. And I really think if you get a good group, a good culture, you will understand these things from the beginning on. I do think a lot of like junior developers shy upon thinking about pipelines or all of these like, kind of big topics. But at the end of the day, this is your daily work. You're working with this. If you don't have any contact with your pipeline, okay, check what's happening. <laughs> But like, if you don't have, regardless of this, this is what you're working, you're pushing, and there should be some layer of testing, some layer of, um, yeah, checking that everything is okay, in, in other words, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I also think mentorship is very important because if you want to actually build an excellent group, like you really have to build something with excellence, you need to mentor as well people. Right, because you cannot expect people to know everything by the time they join. But if you have a good culture, then they will learn it. They will learn because they will see their peers doing that. If you're open to ask everyone about things, you will learn. And then you will be able to also implement things like this. Mm -hmm. So I think this is like very important at the beginning, beginning, beginning of a startup. Um, yeah, <laughs> from my opinion. It's a great question yeah. also by Wade. Wait, thank you. Wade has been sort of running the show tonight with all of his great questions. So <laughs> thank you so much. For sure. Yeah. We have some more questions, I think. So we don't. Yes. So the next question is: What if upper management doesn't find a value in DevOps for our teams? And substitute upper management. It's easy. Yeah, substitute upper management. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think uh, Brian also answered that already. In the <laughs> no, so. <laughs> I, I I work with these kinds of companies a lot, and and, and the, the issue really here is appeasement, right? So you want to appease upper management by saying, "Hey, uh, we we need this and this," and they say no. Like we need more pipelines, we need more automation. That means that we we the team are shrinking the pipeline that is available for building whatever upper management wants, right? So this is already a managed external us versus them culture where the engineering team is not running the product. So it's already not an agile environment, which means that if it's not an agile environment, it's very likely that because upper management is running the show, there is an extremely long feedback period, possibly quarters, possibly months, which means that everybody's thinking that if you just keep doing the things, if you just keep everything 
like the way they are right now, everybody gets to keep their jobs. Now, most people are too, in, too inexperienced in the industry to understand that that's not the case. You as a software company are profitable by virtue of being able to change the software you're building. So once your software becomes hardware, everybody gets fired. Once, once you approach the area where we have a piece of code, it might be a giant monolith, and all requests for features are, oh, we can't do that. We can't do this, we can't do that, we can't do this, you can't do that, we can't do this, we can't do that. Yes, that would be great, but you know, in our system, once that happens, the, and that's an asymptote, the, the closer you get to that line, everybody goes. There isn't any, our job is safe. So if you think, that upper management doesn't want to have DevOps, you are much closer to that line than you think. And the only way to get security in your job is to actually say, no, no, hold on. If we already have these issues, we got to take this seriously. Mm -hmm. And if we're not taking this seriously, and the company is not taking engineering seriously, which means that there are huge problems in the organization, and you're just feeling the engineering side of those symptoms. It's not your fault but you might not be equipped to deal with this at an organizational level. So my recommendation would be to just openly talk about it. Yeah. It's like, how do, okay, upper management doesn't want to do it. Okay, what is the bare minimum that we need to run by upper management if we were to make this decision? It's like, why, are, why don't they see value? Let's show them value. Okay, how can we run an experiment? Tobias mentioned the pipeline should be able to be set up and run in 10 minutes. Adrian mentioned the pipeline should be able to set up in you know, 10 minutes, minutes, not minutes, maybe an hour, not days. So if it can be set up that quickly, why is it so hard to show them value? I think we need to look in the mirror and really ask, we really ask, okay, are we just overworked and we just don't want to deal with this? Or is there a huge problem? Because if there is a huge problem, well, you got to address that huge problem. Maybe there is a huge problem from adopt, from allowing you to adopt the automated pipeline. Maybe writing tests is difficult. Maybe your team doesn't have knowledge in writing tests. Maybe your team knows how to run an X unit library, but they have no experience in how to write tests in a legacy code base, which is the really important information, which is the really important aspect that coaches help you with. It's like you can write, read a book anytime you want. The point is having experience for having experienced the pain of writing tests to a high degree of standard in a legacy code base. That's where the money is. That's where the really mature, professional software craftsmanship is. That's what you should be focusing on. If you're avoiding that problem, you're infantilizing your developers. You're infantilizing your engineering culture. You're preventing them from growing. And then that, that kind of business is already doomed to fail. So there's nothing to worry about because it's already headed for failure. If, if it's headed for failure, then take more risk, not less. Mm -hmm. Unless you have a benevolent reason why that is a bad idea. Maybe there is a revenue, but now you make it unnecessarily risky. But you need to make that you need to have enough vision about the business to make the decision. I would like to add something uh, to this also. Um, because in companies where you have an ops department and a dev department, sometimes dev cannot just set up a pipeline that does continuous deployments because they don't have the permission, they don't have the knowledge. They, they just cannot do this for the existing system. And in such a context, it's, of course, much more work than 10 minutes or an hour to set up a pipeline, especially when all the automation is missing. This can take a long time, like talking uh, weeks or months even. 
um, because you also need to take into account the culture change, the understanding that this needs to change. So the question is, how can we commit, uh, convince upper management that this is something worth to invest in? And my experience here is that most engineers are talking in very tech terms and upper management doesn't understand this. So we need continuous deployment because then we get our software um, deployed faster. So, well, yeah, okay. If I'm a technical a CTO, I might understand what this means for the business and I can translate this into business value. If I'm not that technical or I don't have the headspace for that, I think, okay, now we have more urgent things. We have this feature that gives us 100K euro annual recurring revenue. So let's just build that. Um, it's more important right now. What we can do or what we need to try is to translate the technical things that we want to change, or maybe also the, the structural change that we want to change into business value. How much will it make us faster and why is this important? It means we can experiment faster, it means we can ask customers faster, and it means we can build the right product faster. And we can do this without having so many incidents, we can do this without disappointing existing customers. All of these things are valuable. Maybe we cannot directly um, put a price tag on that and say this is this amount of money, but at least people will understand, okay, this is real business value. It really makes the business uh, better. It makes the business more agile. We can build the right product. This will lead to more customers. So this is something we want to have. And you you create this desire in them for this. You you create you show them the picture in, in, in the head, what how it could look like without even building that. And then you get the buy-in and say, okay, yes, this is something we want. How long does it take? And then you get to talk about the next step. What needs to happen for that? Right? We need to sit together, um, the operations people and the dev people, if we are still like in separate departments. And we need to have this as a common goal because if you have separate departments, chances are those departments have different goals and they have conflicting goals and nothing meaningful can get done when you have this kind of setup. So, mm -hmm. and, and here there's also where more experienced um, lead engineers or engineering managers or coaches can help to communicate this and to help you um, shape your communication. And for example, what we did in one company was in the tech leadership community, the tech leads also in the beginning didn't have this talking in business value terms and they knew exactly what were the issues in, in which teams and what need to be invested from a technical perspective. But when they said, okay, we need to upgrade view to view three, um, what's the business value? Okay, risk is view two is end of life. And if you don't do that, then uh, we might not be able to fix things. We ha might have security issues and we might just be in the press for uh, having like a crappy, uh, a crappy system, kind, kind of these kind of things. And then you can talk about, okay, what does it mean? And so on. So what we did is really um, challenge the engineers, challenging the tech leads to tie this to a business value and to make this uh, understandable for non-technical people. And then it was, much easier to get in this um, this uh, commitment and this buy-in from the engineering uh, management and upper management as well. That, that was, just wanted to say, that was a great answer to that question. Yeah. And uh, it was actually the, we had it as a third topic on our agenda today, uh, practical advices, how to get to the point and DevOps, continuous delivery are prerequisites to actually deploy on Friday. So what Tobias and, and um, what uh, Dennis just said is a prerequisite to actually be able to deploy on Friday without problem with the entire team. Just wanted to say that. Thank you. And also to, uh, sorry, Camilla, for jumping in, which is just, just a touch base with the previous question. When you have this kind of 
um, management-oriented handoff, or, or let's say at least it's about budget confirmation. Like 99% of the time, it's about somebody is deciding budget, the CFO is involved, so there's some some ritual. I wouldn't even say procedure, just some ritual going on about some expected forecasted costs and expected forecasted priorities for some kind of time period. That kind of organization is not agile. So we, we're already not talking about DevOps. It's a, it's a, it's a completely different, um, how would you say, the organizational structure is not optimized for learning. And we will be talking about this tomorrow with Brian. It's like, why do, because Tobias mentioned something that I disagree with. You know, you paraphrase this idea of, you know, how would the CTO, how would the CTO uh, describe continuous delivery? Also, it delivers our software faster. That's not why we deploy software. We, we, want to, we want to deliver faster because our requirements are wrong or we misunderstood them or we implemented them incorrectly or we made assumptions which are not correct. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. That's our main topic for tomorrow. But the point about deploying faster is not so that the code goes out faster. The point is so that we can go back to the requirements as soon as possible. That's the main goal here. And that is only possible in a organization that is that is self-aware enough so that, that there is no egotism going on where they say, I have an idea, what can we build to verify this assumption? That is the primary driver for these kinds of decisions. And these kinds of questions do not get asked in a culture where the biggest conversation of the quarter is what budget do you need? And that is a completely different problem. I just wanted to highlight that. It's like when you need a budget conversation, you are not in an agile environment because you are built on forecasting, you are built on cost reduction, you are built on the pipeline is built on avoiding unnecessary loss, which means that 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 not investing in a pipeline is also a good, right? So it is it is incorrectly flagged as oh, if we don't invest into a pipeline, we save some money and we can build more features. So if the incentives are already set up that way, you need to have a completely different conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's the same I, conversation. I, I think I think you both talked about the same. But one is you was Janice talking about strategic aspects, and um, uh, Tobias was talking about the tactical aspects. But both, in my opinion, are important to get this done right. In my opinion, yeah, I, I, I don't hear us disagreeing here because uh, what I said, like the software should be delivered faster, is something that an engineer might say. Uh, as it was an example for talking That's in terms, as well, yeah, and then that's not the business goal of course the business goal is as you mentioned dennis that we uh, that we can find out that our requirements were wrong and that we can iterate and try it again and have this iterative uh, software development cycle that brings us to the right product faster and as soon as we link this these technical things to the business things it is much easier to convince upper management there i mean usually usually what happens is that there is a feedback loop missing in the engineering culture. You know, so the loop is broken. The loop is, I have a feature, I have a task, I need to deploy the task. And it, it creates this illusion that the loop is one task, next task, one task, next task, one task, next task. That's not a feedback loop. That's waterfall. That's a value stream that is completely individualistic and is 
focused purely on providing features as a feature factory. That is not a business. And that is only a cost center. It provides no value. It provides no revenue. So the only way to have your software be profitable is to build it, give it to the ideal buyer, and then see if they buy it. If they don't buy it, change the feature. Now, this is, this is extremely simplistic. But the point here is that that's the loop. The loop isn't I build this, now I, now I build the next thing. The loop is I build it, do I need to go back? And the, the default assumption should be, yes, of course, I will have to go back. So whatever I'm building right now, I should build it in such a way that it survives three, four, five iterations of me going back without me having to fight the architecture, without me having to fight the way that it was set up, without me having to fight the infrastructure upon which it was set up. That's the whole point of DevOps. That's the whole point of software engineering. That's why you need architects. That's why you need loose coupling. That's why you need... Uh, let's say design, that's why you need tests. Because in the first few iterations, you'll be going back to it and sort of rewriting everything. And a organization that is optimized to reduce costs will try to avoid that like the devil. And such an organization has a crisis ahead of them that they will need to learn from. Mm -hmm. There's no way around that. But context matters. If you're in such an organization, Understand that it's not your fault. It's just that this company is optimized to avoiding that crisis. And it won't outgrow that kind of environment unless something sporadically uh, life-changing happens in that organizational culture. Okay, we have this comment and then two more questions. We have skipped, mm -hmm. I, but they're still relevant, so I would go through them. So we have 20 minutes left for this, just uh, to tell everyone so it's it's totally fine to ask one or two more questions if you have those feel free to ask those um so maybe th that that's an actual what we see at the moment is um actually i think a response to what uh, to what um dennis was uh, make a statement yeah. and um so dennis you, you was basically saying that you should in this feedback cycle you know you should get a lot of feedback fast you know if the market fit is and they do CICD because of that, <clears throat> could you maybe say uh, toss some words uh, about this specific statement now, which this is a little bit, a little bit contrary to what you've just said. Yeah. So yeah. another compliment to what I just said that in line with this answer is the CTO should be making a build or buy decision. If the decision was built, then we should be building as few different things in parallel as possible. This, this idea of monotasking, you know, and I like to use the restaurant analogy. If I need to cook seven steaks, ideally, how should I be monotasking that? Like, should one person be cooking seven steaks? Should seven people be cooking seven steaks? Because usually it's not a linear scale. But we should definitely not be cooking seven steaks and uh, making some chicken if this is a steakhouse. And you should be really clear on what are we about? What are we, what is our DNA as a company? Um, so my advice, especially for those that are more on the tactical side, so engineers, architects, engineering managers who are from an engineering background, uh, so sort of technical engineers, technical program managers, technical product managers, is your, let's say velocity or just your cohesion with the company will increase the more you say no to nonsense requests. 
So yes, you will spend money in doing a loop on one feature rather than doing one iteration on seven features. That is your main focus. How do I, instead of seven things, how do I make five of them go away so I can iterate a few times on the important one? That is your main focus. Your main focus is not, oh, we need to do it perfectly so that we never have to touch this again. That is, that is what people think engineering is, and that is the main thing to avoid, and that is something you have to unlearn as you mature in your role. And maybe management thinks that that's okay that they're thinking like that, and they will continue thinking like that because they're not engineers, and they, under no sudden change of heart, will they suddenly become engineering experts. Mm. That's why you're there. But you just need to be aware of this process. And if you have this tendency to, to want to make things perfect, this sort of perfectionism tendency, that is then something that you will sort of have to give yourself permission to unlearn gradually, which means saying no to wishy-washy wish lists. To something, if something seems nonsense or sort of out of left, left field, try to make it go away. One of the first things that I always coach new teams is what percentage of requests do you say no to? If you get a backlog, if you're if you're doing Scrum, if you get a backlog or a wish list that somebody wants you to estimate, what percentage of that are you saying no to? Because it should be a high number. It should be like 80% of things we're just not doing. We're just, we're just not doing the build decision on the majority of it because we have a very strong triage system. We understand what our DNA is and we say that is next. And the entire team is just on that and trying to make that as as good as possible for the market because the better we make it, the more we invest it, the more revenue we extract. That Those are the machines you want to build. Something where you can put money in and more money comes out. Anything else is a IT department that is a cost center in a business that has no business be doing being in the technology sector. And most businesses are like that. They are in the technology sector by necessity. So give us some feedback, please, if this was... Um understandable and, and ask a question. Yeah, that was um, we have another question I would I would toss to Tobias this time. Um, question for the panel, actually, but um, it was partly already answered, but I think Tobias wasn't giving, um, wasn't, wasn't the answering person. So Tobias, what would you think about this question? Um, should engineers be encouraged to interact directly with clients, customers or users? What would you say? Uh, I'm I'm all for that, and the reason is that it's easier to really understand the customer and to ask the questions that I'm interested as an engineer when I can ask the customer. If you introduce a proxy like uh, a product manager, for example, then they might ask some different questions. They might bring something back, and it might not be the the thing that I actually need. And I might hear things in a bit of in a bit different terms that the customer actually hasn't said but that was already the interpretation of the product manager and it's more likely to, to go wrong. And it really helps to sit on calls with customers from time to time, of course, not all the time because we also have other things to do, um, but to discuss with the customer what they currently like about the product, what uh, they um, like to change or see them use the product and see where they uh, struggle, where they, where they are blocked with something, where they have a friction and don't know what to do. And then you can interact directly and you see this and it will change your understanding of the domain. It will change your understanding of what the business is all about. Like in the end, it is about automating or making processes that the customer has easier, solving a problem for them. So you understand the problem better and this will lead 
to building better uh, better software. And also it creates more understanding and empathy for the customer that a product manager might not be able to translate. For example, if this customer is not really technical, you might be hard, it might be very difficult for you to imagine how they use a computer without even seeing that. And just seeing this makes, oh, yes, okay, they are not using any uh, um, keyboard shortcuts. They always use right-click uh, copy, for example. And then it's so much easier when you think about, can we make this easier to use by using keyboard shortcuts? So no, we don't need this because for our customers, it's not, not what they are looking for. They are probably looking more for Clippy in the bottom right. <laughs> mm. Good. I think that answered the question very well. So it's a, it's actually important to do that. So to just, you know, too long did read. Um, it's about uh, communication. So as we said at the beginning and now, and I think this is uh, maybe one of the most important things regarding the topic to, of today. So if you have that in your mindset, uh, you probably uh, already have the other stuff as well. So, you know, it's an indicator that you have understood the right culture practices and methodologies to actually be able to work in such a mature way. Okay, regarding time, we have the last 15 minutes now. Um, I would say we just go through the last questions and comments, just display them, um, to, to just honor everyone, because uh, that was actually a great uh, audience participation today. Really enjoyed that. We will write about this. We will make newsletters, posts about this. So feel free to follow us, uh, to participate on those um, discussions in the next days and weekend. Uh, and yes, uh, so Camilla, would you uh, lead us through the last questions and uh, statements? Sure thing. We have the next one here. So it's basically question answering from another question. We're talking about like, what qualities and traits of like first engineering hires should have. And according to this is technical expertise, good problem solving skills, strong communication skills, and not to forget the cultural fit. And sounds, sounds like I mean, a statement, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, as a statement, yeah. But I do think it's pretty good to point this out because I think a lot of people, of course, when you're talking about the first hires, you're talking about senior developers, right? But I think some people really tend to forget that when you hire a junior developer, you're able to mold them in the way of the culture that it is. It is a good culture, you're gonna grow with this, right? But if it's actually a bad culture, then you're not gonna see this improvement even in the engineering part of things, right? So I think this culture really helps to think, even if you should have a contact with clients, I mean, definition of done is actually telling the client, it is deployed now in stage, can you test it? Is it okay? Please give us feedback, right? Checking that the board that you have, for example, we don't put the tickets in done ourselves. We send directly to the client. I ask the client specific to get some feedback with this. Once they say it's done, they put it in done. Because for me, it doesn't mean that done is not my definition of done. It's the definition mm -hmm. of the client of done. Is it working as they intended to do? Yeah. So I think this, these are the things that you can really make fit if you have a good culture. If you really learn this from the beginning on. Of course, it takes a bit. And I understand how much work it means to hire a junior developer. But you can also see it as an investment in that regard. Mm -hmm. Because you will have the engineer that you actually want. Yeah, that's true. And the next one from Brian actually touches on this. Um, if you can, yeah, exactly. It is so important that new developers land in good teams, otherwise, they learn bad habits and from strong opinions about the wrong things. I always say this 
a lot of developers in our industry just didn't have the good fortune of landing in good teams. You know, so if you're a leader, my recommendation would be make sure that your work environment doesn't suck. It might not be perfect. Just <laughs> make it suck less. If you know there are problems, deal with the problems. Don't create before you create new ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you if you have problems in the team, don't don't scale the team and hope it goes magically away exactly. because it will spread. It you scale your problems. It, right? it gets, <laughs> yeah, it just gets bigger. Everything gets worse with scale. If you have problems, fix them yeah. and then scale. Yeah. Great. Okay. Let me Next one. Check. You can click on stead. Just saying. I'm checking for the next questions. Yeah, there's there's a ta- uh, there's a tab up there, stat that you can see all stat comments. We stare at comments all day long. <laughs> well, actually, I, I yeah, exactly that. So the next one is from Grand Mill. Automated pipelines are easy. It's getting a sign off that is difficult, particularly if you're delivering across tiers with different deployment cadence. So, we- what do you think about this? I think Tobias. we touched on this. Mm, yeah. Maybe Tobias, wrap it up, maybe all, all out of your perspective. Yeah. I, I still try to understand uh, the, the question, um, like why I need a sign off to um, deploy uh, with an automated pipeline. Like if I have the pipeline and if it has all the quality measures and, mm-hmm. and so I'm so much better off than having a person doing manual deployments in the end. So um, if if the if the standard is higher, if the quality is higher, what is this, the sign of really needed about? And is that really needed? Uh, or is it just because of being afraid? I see this often in regulated environments where um, people say we cannot do this because of PCI DSS, or we cannot do this because of, I don't know, uh, I saw this and this and uh, the level this and this. And the truth is, if you look closely, uh, there's a lot of freedom how to interpret those things. And once you make sure that having automated pipelines is a level of higher quality and higher safety for um, for the software development, then it's very hard to argue against automated deployments uh, in with regard to these uh, regulations. And actually, you can then um, yeah can have uh, automated deployments even if you are in the finance industry, for example, that uh, or something else. So I'm not sure if I can answer this question more specifically at the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we could say on the tactical operational level that the faster you can, uh, you faster your cadence is, you know, of, of deployments, the less you stack up things and the easier it gets to actually review things. So this is then the basic idea of continuous integration and delivery again. Um, so the larger your batch sizes are, the, the, the less likely it is that you are, are able to uh, sustain a high cadence. And... Um, Suddenly, you run into this that you need to review and sign off large batches, which is hard to do. And the smaller things are, you know, the easier it is to actually say, ah, maybe we had that with um, with uh, Dennis already talking about that you actually don't need pull requests and code yeah. reviews. It's linear and lot. exponential, right? Yeah. So the, the batches scale linearly because it's about human typing that is being scaled and human decision making that's linear. Mm-hmm. And the time invested by somebody else to stop their work and review something scales exponentially. So the bigger it is, the more the more harder, <laughs> the more difficult it becomes with scale. 
So the smaller you keep it, the faster it will be. And regarding regulated environments, automating aut automating your deployment uh, pipeline does not mean that you're suddenly going to do unsigned, unsafe, unregulated deployments. What you can automate is that you can make sure that all deployments follow regulations because it's automated. That's yeah. what you want to automate. Good. Last question. For the last question is also from Ro. Is it possible that we have startups that are not not engineering first? Of course, I think. <laughs> so you could have that. You need to maybe ask, ask the question: How large is the startup? Yeah. So as to focus on a product which is not so techy. And of course, you can't do that. If you say you have a Microsoft startup and it's not techy, you will probably run into problems on some point. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's about your context again. So, so it's very I would I would mention here that most companies do have technology, mm -hmm. but not all companies have are building technology. So if you're a kind of startup that builds software, not just uses it, then you definitely need some kind of engineering first culture. If you build software of any kind, even if you're building something like data pipelines, you know, Definitely, there's a huge difference between data science done well as an engineering science or just having millions of Excel spreadsheets that are using Zapier to sort of connect data together. Like, that's really important. Is Excel a database? No, no, we don't start. Keep that for another episode. Okay. So we are done with the. Oh. Sorry. No. <laughs> okay, so um, we're coming to the end. We have five more minutes and let's wrap this topic up. Um, so we've talked about uh, the problem of being afraid to deploy on Friday. We talked about the strategic and tactical aspects of DevOps, continuous deployment, a culture, which are all essential to be able to do that, to deploy on Friday, which was the topic again. And in the end, we talked a lot about um, giving uh, advices and uh, ideas how to get there, you know, how to fix this problem to answer questions. And I think that was a pretty cool agenda today. So the agenda was, was very audience driven. And I really liked that, have to say that. And uh, I want to, at this point, say thank you for that so it's it's always great to have this kind of mini conference where every everyone is really coming together and talking about those things and as you saw we try to get juniors up to ctos together you know it is like um this is what we want to do we don't want to talk about software architecture for example and only invite arch uh, you know arch uh, architects for this so this is not we want to make it understandable for everyone because this is the uh, the essence of a good culture of a good learning culture where people can learn if you make it average people have a realistic goal to learn if you make it elite juniors won't stack up you know you will isolate everyone else and you won't grow so it is basically a very bad uh, foundation to make it like people talking in my opinion way too much about high, elite performing teams elite performing teams are not senior only teams people mix up those things it's about delivery it's about how much output you generate how how good your your time to recovery is how much you get through the pipeline how much value you create how much feedback you get but this can be done by juniors as well and so 
I really like how, how we did that. And we will definitely create a lot of content out of this session. Really looking forward for that one. And yes, this is my thank you. And I now pass the word to someone else who wants to do something with that. Tobias, <laughs> let's hear from you. How is, how is this? Your, I can leave your first life. How is it for you? Stream at least of this size and of this length. And I cannot believe that two hours are already over. This <laughs> was so fast. Yeah. The topic was fun. And, and I think we could talk for another two hours. At least I feel I feel like we could. And it was, it was super nice. Uh, thank you for also all the lot, uh, all the questions and uh, answers in the, in the comments. I tried to keep up with them. It was really, really nice. And for me, I, I can only second what you said, Adrian, is it's like software development is a team effort and the team is not only seniors. And uh, so it's good that we also talk in groups that are not only like CTOs or like super senior architects or what have you not, because we have that too much and we need to have this common under understanding and working together. And science is very clear on that, that a team of uh, mid-level engineers that work together will outperform a team, like team in quotes, of uh, seniors that work individually. So, um, and if you have a mixed team, it's even better because people will also become better by mentor juniors and juniors will become better by this. And this also shares the skills because if juniors do not learn how to build CI pipelines, when will be the right place where they will magically learn how this works? That only happens because they get the opportunity to learn that. And we as like the people who are in the industry for longer have this um, opportunity to, to spread that and to share that knowledge. So uh, thank you for the opportunity also. Maybe Camille, would you like to go next or do you want to have the last word? No, I can go next. Dennis can have the last word. <laughs> um, no, I'm also very thankful. I love going for these talks. Uh, for me, it's very insightful to hear what is going on, like the different opinions, the questions of the public, for sure. Um, and I do learn a lot from this. I love chatting around and I think um, yeah more juniors should be involved in all of this they shouldn't be that scared of talking about these topics or reading about these topics because it's not only as I said before for seniors or architects I mean of course they might be implementing but you're going to use it every day so you might as well really learn what's up so I think that's very nice and very insightful and I'm very happy that you all were here thank you so much now Dennis I would just like to thank everybody. Thank you, Tobias, Camilla, Adrian. Adrian, especially for setting it up and inviting Tobias and finding Tobias as our guest. And very thankful for the audience. You know, it's it's not fun doing this and then there's no viewers, there's no live participation. So the more we get swamped and bombarded with questions so that we sort of really have to up our game regarding our <laughs> response rate, uh, the, the, the more this becomes more you know, tangible and meaningful because we are, it feels like we are making a difference step-by-step step in the industry. And that's at the end of the day, that's what's important. It's not mm -hmm. what we waffle on about theoretically. It's about actually applying this knowledge. So hopefully somebody has learned something new today and will apply it tomorrow at work or apply it today at work. Maybe they'll have a new aha moment about something, whatever that is. I don't know what it is for you. It's, it's going to be uniquely for you. Um, if you would like to talk about that or sort of, Keep us in the loop what what's going on for you i'd love to hear that and i would like to invite you to join us tomorrow on a similar conversation that we're going to have with brian regarding that feedback loop that we spoke about earlier we're going to be focusing on that um, to sort of have a little bit more of a sort of tactical to product 
um, discussion on that on that side. And yeah, thank you so much for being with us. I know it's two hours, so I would like to thank you for spending your time, to investing your time, and he being here with us. Because I know that most of you are actually actively listening, actively watching, and that means a lot. So thank you. Thank you, Rowan. And thank until you, next we meet. So I will play some music and I wish you <laughs> or all of you a great day. Thank you for participating. Thank you, Tobias, for being our guest. And yes, <laughs> see you tomorrow then. Goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.